To keep across all of the latest information and content from The Open, follow the Championship's social channels today. Just search for The Open's verified accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and LinkedIn and enjoy a range of features, news, videos, images and audio from golf's original major. You're listening to The Open Podcasts. Still, has he got it? I think he has. <laughs> well, very well. Oh my goodness, Louis Oosthuizen stepped back at the eighth. Huge leap forward at the ninth. And that is a, a mighty leap towards this Open Championship. That's a lovely shot. That might even go in the hole. That's magnificent. Oh, well now. The 150th Open Championship at St Andrews is nearly upon us. The big question, of course, who will follow in the footsteps of Tiger Woods, Seve Ballesteros, Jack Nicklaus and Sir Nick Faldo, amongst others, by winning golf's most famous trophy, the Claret Jug at the home of golf. And with a record-breaking 290,000 fans set to attend, the largest in the championship's proud history, it will take someone special to produce on the biggest stage. I'm Marcus Buckland, host of The Open Radio, and this is the 150th show. Next week, we'll be conducting an in-depth preview of the 150th Open, the runners and the riders who could be claiming this historic championship. But over the next two episodes, we are going to take a hole-by-hole look at one of the most famous courses in the world with the help of some of the most iconic moments in golf. And alongside me for the journey are multiple European Tour winner and highly regarded UK golf broadcaster Robert Lee, who played in four Opens with two top 25 finishes, and leading US broadcaster and best-selling author Matt Adams. Anything he doesn't know isn't worth knowing. Just to tee things up, guys, and starting with you, Rob, how energised are you at the prospect of the 150th Open at the home of golf? Every Open that you find that lands at St Andrews is epic. Um, This, with the number 150 attached to it, is going to be extra special for so many reasons. It is just the most amazing place to go to. Um, It's the crucible of the sport, St Andrews. And when you go there, and I know you told me earlier on you haven't been there, it is Incredible from the town. It's just it's a it's a, a Scottish town. Nothing remarkable except for there's golf shops in the town. I mean, where else do you find that? And the course is kind of hidden behind russocks. You don't really see it when you're walking around. And you walk down the little road, turn left, see the 18th green, and it all opens up by the beach in front of you. It is absolutely incredible. And the town plays a big part of what St Andrews is. You go out along the seafront, all the way out to the far side, to the Eden Estuary, and then you turn around on the back nine, and for the next two and a half hours, you're just making your way back towards the town. It is sensational. Yeah, for a variety of reasons. I've never been able to get there, and I'm sure that many of the thousands who are going to flock to the Open over the four days will be making their debuts as well, and we are in for an absolute treat. Matt, is is the magic of the Open and, and this year's landmark event stirring similar sentiments stateside? I think it's probably stirring similar sentiments globally, to be fair, because it is, as Rob just described, such a special place. It is the ultimate mecca for those that love the game of golf. And the golf course, while it is brilliant and can be very much of a riddle from one's first time playing and onward, 
it's also about the town, the old gray tune, and about all the history that that embraces from going up to the cathedral ruins and, and the, the graves of old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris and Alan Robson, all those things that matter so much to the game of golf and to the history of this town. Right there, you can find the ruins of the St. Andrew's Castle, and you can find the, the tunnels that still run under the street from those trying to uh, break into inside the castle when others had taken refuge there. It speaks so many different phases of history. That history for our part, of course, is defined by the Open coming back there once again. It is flanked by and embraced by uh, the RNA building. Just behind that is the Golf Museum. And then the echoes of what have taken place on that ground, on that property, and I'm talking about centuries of the same. And then, of course, that at the game's highest pinnacle, the Open. It's it's really such a special place that it, it sends a chill up you, your spine when you see it at any time. But I imagine that for yourself, Marcus, and for those that will experience it for the very first time, it is a moment that they will never forget. Well, I certainly can't wait. We haven't got to wait too long, but we need to begin our journey. Now, this is the plan as far as our concept for what is a two-part podcast series is concerned. We are going to take a whole-by-whole -whole tour of the course while looking back at some of the iconic moments that spring to mind as soon as you transport yourself to past opens at St Andrews, and there are plenty of those. Now, hole one is the burn, a par four, 375 yards. The old course does begin with one of the most iconic shots in the game, a stone's throw from that RNA clubhouse that Matt mentioned. Players have the luxury of targeting one of the widest fairways in golf. Most will be left with relatively short pitches over this Wilkin burn and the opportunity to begin with a birdie three, as this man did at the start of his third round on his way to victory back in 1990. Now to the first screen, Nick Felder for a three. Head still, has he got it? I think he has. <laughs> well, well, well. They're coming in thick and fast. He makes his intentions known pretty early on. What a perfect start. Rob, to what turned out to be a, a perfect four days for Nick Faldo. And that battle with Greg Norman, what are your overriding memories of 1990? Well, it was Faldo just being um, doing what he does, which is being methodical and resolute and not giving anyone who's looking at him the thought that he might crack. He didn't. He was relentless and not for the first time in his career, he took out Greg Norman. And to win, Bobby Jones said, to, to have a career and not win at St Andrews if you're collecting majors is there's something missing, which Jack Nicholas also reiterated. So, Felder's got one of those. Big, big start, though. But it's a, it's a wide open hole, the first hole. It's a nothing hole. Mm. However, downwind when they got the front pin, it's a nasty second because that little burn, you just underbid by just a, a smidgen and it gets wet and you can make a five or a six there when you're looking for a three. It's just a deceptive nothing hole but it can catch you out. Yeah. I remember Colin Montgomery actually going in the burn with his first shot in his first round back in 2005, but he went on to finish runner-up to Tiger Woods that year. So, of course, you can recover from a poor start. But in essence, Matt, yeah, it does look like quite a nice, gentle beginning, doesn't it? But then again, you've got to remember you're at St Andrews. It's going to be your first shot of the week. Anything can happen. This is game number 15. All of you from Scotland, Colin Montgomery. 
A great cheer, and that was the voice of Ivor Robson, who has started this championship off for many years. We'll hear his voice. As Colin booms away with a, a little bit of a lofted wood, a three wood. One of the widest landing grounds in golf. Monty finds the Swilkin burn. So not the best possible start for his challenge. Yeah, indeed, it's, it's an interesting hole, as Rob pointed out, because of how easy it is to reach the berm if, if one doesn't use proper judgment. It's like so much of the old course, left is good. Right, there is out of bounds. You can go out of bounds on the left side, but you have to do something extraordinary. We've seen it done in the past. And the way that that first green, uh, it, it tends to camber slightly away. So when you're trying to play the safe shot into the middle of the green, it can easily get away to the back. What struck me as we were recounting that birdie and that start by Nick Faldo and the comments that Rob made was remembering that he won the Masters earlier that year. And, and if you think about what his swing looked like back in those days, this was when he was at the throes of, of, the, of the swing that he was working on with David Ledbetter, where it started an era where swings looked so very different, so artistic, the, the fact that the, the best players in the world would get the club back to square to do what they needed to do with it. And here we were watching Nick Faldo. It felt very much like he was working into a position here, a position there, a position at the top, and a position to get the club back square at impact. Obviously, it worked very well for him as, as the win that he had uh, in that year of 1990 was his second of three open victories. And he ended up winning as... Uh, Robert also noted it, it was it was substantial and it was convincing by five over Mark McNulty and Payne Stewart that year. So that's hole one. And actually, Rob, I've got to ask you because you played the old course a couple of times recently. So yeah. how did you begin? Do, do you know that you, you asked about St Andrews? And the thing about St Andrews is because it's in the town, there's always people watching your first tee shot and watching your last putt. It doesn't matter if it's at six o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock at night in the summertime, there are people watching what you do. So you stand on that first tee, which is a, it's a big tee. It sort of runs along. If you look left from the tee, it runs straight onto the 18th green pretty much. It's massive. And you're in front of the old lady, the clubhouse of the RNA. You're right there in the centre of the world. You're in the centre of the world. And even if you're just having a bounce game with a few mates and you're lucky enough to have had a start time, it's epic. It's just epic standing on that first tee. Yeah. You've got the history of, of the whole world and St Andrews beyond behind you, and you've got 18 holes and fabulous five hours in front of you. It's the most magical place anywhere in the world. It really is. And it can go wrong. I spoke to a friend of mine who played there a couple of weeks ago. He managed to slice his tee shot into the grandstand down the right. Now, OK, he's, he's not exactly a, a top golfer, but even the widest fairway in, in the world can lead to all sorts of embarrassment. In answer to your question, I had a, I had a game with Iona Stephen and Johnny Morgan. We fixed it up. We turned up on the Saturday. Iona got the start time, three o'clock in the afternoon. We're on the first tee and we were all nervous, all of us, because none of us play that much all the time. So there's people watching. And actually, all three of us hit really good ones down there. So it was good. Yeah, I'm pleased. It, it was into the wind. It was into the wind, by, by the way. Start with. Yeah, well, wind direction's very important. And, of course, you wouldn't have mentioned the shot if you made a mess of it, but I knew, I knew you wouldn't. So, uh, Well, that's, that's hole one, which, yeah, essentially it is a gentle enough start, an opportunity for a, a birdie, but, of course, as I mentioned, Colin Montgomery found the burn. It can happen if, uh, if you're left with a, a potentially awkward second shot, depending on the conditions. Now, the second hole, 
par four, 452 yards. You've got Gorse to the right off the tee. You've got Cheap's bunker. You've got the green share with the 16th. You've got two bunkers to the right of the green. You've got a diagonal ridge running up to the front of the green, which obviously is bad news if the approach is short. So, Rob, from a playing point of view, what is the key here? Again, wind direction is key. If it's into the wind, it's not an easy tee shot. And the, the story of St Andrews is left is safe, right is trouble. That is true. But the genius of St Andrews is the more right you are and the more closer you are to the gorse, the out-of-bounds, the bushes, the bunkers, the closer you play down that side, the easier your second shot is. So it's a juxtaposition when you're on the tee. Do I play safe and have a tougher second or do I chance it down the right a little bit to open up the pin position? Second is a very tricky green. There's some extreme humps in the kind of the middle bit that you see. You don't see all the green. Um, it's very undulating, particularly at the front part of it, almost like there's a buried elephant in there. And where they put the pin is absolutely key. You look at that pin sheet before you tee off. That, that determines what you do from the tee. Thinking back to 2015, Paul Dunn, the Irish amateur who found himself in a position perhaps to win the Open after three rounds. So he was in an astonishing position. This would do him the world of good to see this disappear. He bogeyed the second hole. Well, it could have been a lot worse, but that's done his confidence no good. Matt, ju just in, in, in a more general manner, thinking of, of Paul Dunn, if an amateur is to win the Open again, is St Andrews perhaps the most likely venue for that sort of fairy tale story? Uh, I think so. I think the thing about the Open in general and the, the playing of of the championship, this major on uh, links golf courses tends to open up the field. I would go back to 2009 as an example, and that here we had a 59-year-old Tom Watson that nearly won the Open for a sixth time because you've got one is what Rob was describing to you. You've got strategy to play in terms of where you want to place the golf ball on the course, but it also gets influenced by the whimsical nature of Lynx golf. Things can happen there to any player of any ability that they didn't expect, good or bad. So when it comes down to it from an amateur's perspective, if they are striking the ball particularly well, uh, then they can deal with the wins. And the wins in 2015 that Paul Dunn had to deal with were substantial. The entire field obviously had to deal with the same. But his ball striking was so solid that week that it placed him amongst the best through three rounds of that Open Championship. And uh, as a result, that's why he was knocking on the door. We started the show talking about Nick Faldo and his battle with Greg Norman. I'm thinking back to 2000, David Duval, I remember his approach to the second. Of course, he was doing everything he could that year to try and keep up with an inspired Tiger Woods. That's a lovely shot. That might even go in the hole. That's magnificent. Oh, well now. Well, what would you expect from the two best players in the world? Yes, we might be looking at, remember, Turnberry, 77. The jewel in the sun, because the sun has come out after a rather disappointing morning of weather. And he knows, although he can't see the ball because of the rising ground, he knows he's pretty close. Tiger knows that Duval's closer than he. It's funny how sometimes actually the Open does produce these sort of match play combinations going into the final round, doesn't it? Yeah, and I remember I remember the class that David Duval had and Tiger at the end. Uh, David Duval had a, had a nightmare at 17 and... Um, there was a warmth between the two men, but taking down Tiger in the year 2003 majors, pretty impossible. And, and I think Duval would have realised that 
the task ahead of him was monumental. But boy, did he did he have it in his mind that he was going to have a go. Well, we'll talk more about the 17th later, of course, and some of the horrors that have befallen some of the biggest names in the sport. That's hole two. Hole three, another par four, 398 yards. Now, the Cartgate bunkers guard the front of the green. That is shared with the 15th. The safe option, as Rob was mentioning, you, you stay left as a general rule, but that does bring the bunker into play. The bold option is a drive down the right-hand side of the fairway. And as Colin Montgomery demonstrated on the third in 2005, despite it being a pretty short hole, it is difficult to get close to the pin. Good shot. Very good shot. They just checked up on him a fraction. One of your countrymen, Alex Colin Montgomery. This for a birdie. On number three to go ten under par, tracking yeah. in. I think there's a lot of my countrymen here. It gives you that idea. <laughs> Monty raising the roof back in 2005. He had a, a terrific run. I remember the support. Matt, obviously, Tiger Woods was, was the man to beat and, and nobody was going to beat him. But Monty did his best. And, and I thought it was quite a cathartic experience for him after some of the, the near misses, some of the suffering that he endured in, in previous majors. There's no doubt about that. It also speaks to the complexity, as we said, the riddle that is the old course, because as you noted earlier in the show, remember, he hit the burn to start this one. And when it was all said and done, fast forward to the end of the book, the last chapter, the final paragraph, he ended up finishing shy of Tiger Woods. So yes, it was a proud showing. It was a great tournament for Colin Montgomery, but it shows you that even the slightest mistake at the old course in that setting, and particularly against Tiger, who was just coming in at the height of his prowess, was one that could cost him. Are the greens a particular challenge on that hole? Every green's a challenge because we're getting into the part of the golf course now where they're double greens. If you add the third and the 15th, that adds up to 18. That's how you work out which is the opposite green. So the third shares the 15th green. So they're all absolutely mahusive. And you can hit a poor shot and be on the green, but you're actually not really used to hitting 30-yard putts. I mean, it's quite common at St Andrews to have a putt of 30 yards. 40 yards, I'm not feet, yards. Mm. That's how far you are away. And with crosswinds or into and helping, that comes into the equation. Judging how hard to hit a putt from that far is something for the rest of the year or the next five years you do not do. So it's extraordinary. Well, from the third to hole four, uh, named Ginger Beer, though I think quite often you need something a bit stronger after you've played it. It's a 480-yard par four, considered, I think, by many, Rob, to be the toughest hole, certainly on, on the front nine. What makes it potentially the toughest challenge? Into the wind, it's a, it's a brute, obviously, from its distance. And there's a there's a pinch point. There's a there's a bit of fairway, uh, more no more than, I'm going to say, 15 yards wide. That's it. It's If it's 15 yards, I might be exaggerating. At around, you know, normally with my two iron off the tee finished, about it's about 300-ish down there, 320 maybe. And... That sort of limits how far you can hit the ball from the tee. So if it's into the wind, you're not going to get there anyway. And if it's downwind, you don't want to go that far because left in the hummocks or as gorse and rubbish on the right, 
you want to be on that fairway. So you're leaving yourself, whatever you do, a lengthy-ish second shot. It's just another really tricky par four. Into the wind, and if it's raining, we don't know what the weather's going to be like, but there's a hump that you've got to carry at about mm, 250, something like that, on the left-hand side. That can become an issue in horrible weather into your face. It's a tough hole. You make four, you make four at the fourth, and you're off and running, really. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, that's a point we've got to stress here. The weather, inevitably, as it always does, is going to have a huge part to play in what happens. We were all lucky enough to be together uh, last year for sunbaked days mm. uh, in, in 2021. So, Matt, I guess a lot of people are already looking at long-range forecasts, trying to work out what they can expect. But but realistically, you don't know, do you, until, until the night before, or even that afternoon when suddenly dark clouds appear. So uh, as, as skilled as we are in trying to work out who might do this, what might be a winning score, clearly the elements are, are going to be a, a vital ingredient, as they always are. As they always are. When we were there last in 2015, of course, the final round was pushed into Monday because of delays that were driven principally by the very severe winds. The golf course was bufferted by uh, these crosswinds that were just absolutely unrelenting. And if you recall, in 2015, that was the year when Paul Dunn, who we mentioned earlier in the third round, shot a six under par round. Dunn, the amateur, one of the five. Best to go eight under. Well, it's a birdie feast. It's a putting feast. You can call it whatever you like, but I've, it's been a long time since I've seen so many putts hold of good length putts, too. That ended up being the lowest round by an amateur in the Open at St. Andrews in the history. Think about that for a second. It saw and reached the top of the leaderboard tied on the mark of 12 under par for this Irish amateur from County Wicklow. He actually was a graduate of the University of Alabama. Sadly, he was not able to keep up the form through the final round and ended up finishing in tie for 30th. But once again, it goes to this conversation of that the Open is so equitable in terms of what it presents that Paul Dunn had a magical three of four rounds and it ended up being a Open that he could be very proud of his performance. Yeah, we've remembered the highs and the lows of, of Paul Dunn in 2015. His career, Rob, hasn't kicked on since then. The brutal truth is often you get one chance at the Open, don't you? Your one opportunity can come and go in yeah, the blink of an eye. I, I think for a lot of players on you know both tours, DP World Tour, PGA Tour, I'm not talking about the upper echelons, but for the middle order, you may just get in your life one chance to win a major. You know, Rich Beam, one chance to win a the USPGA Championship. He's got to beat Tiger Woods down the stretch to do it, and he did. He took his shot, and you get these results every now and again. Someone comes out the blue and does it, but most people get one chance if, they, if they're prominent that week, and most people don't take it. So it's golf is a very hard game. Put yourself, when you're not used to it, in the cauldron of a major championship. You know, Marcus Buckland coming down the last. <laughs> yeah. He's got a 10-shot lead. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure you could close it out. I'm not sure you could. Well, listen, I, there's no way I'd close it out. The thought of having a 10-shot lead anywhere, never mind the Open, is, is beyond the realms of possibilities. But I, I marvel at, at, at all these these guys and, and these women who, in golf in particular, for me, as a, a budding amateur, and uh, I mean, Matt, you've, you've watched everybody play over this. I don't know how they're able to, to stay in the moment, to relax temporarily, but there's so much thought time, particularly when you're getting towards the end of a major. For me, that that's a superhuman effort to be able to trust your technique and to keep in the moment and, and have the concentration to close out something like an open. 
Now, this, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's the, it's the pinnacle of the, the, the grandest stages that one could be on in any major. And so that alone is a crucible of pressure enough. But the fact that you're playing and uh, in, in a chance of personal glory as well tethered to that is something that makes it so very, very unique. Now, in fairness, the players that will have reached this pinnacle are all very accomplished players of their own right, amateur or professional, so that the the setting would not be uh, unusual to them in terms of the need to hit a shot at the time that you need to do it. It's just a question of how how well you can keep the pressure at bay. And it tends to ratchet itself up, as we've seen, round after round, sometimes shot after shot. So by the time they reach the the final stanzas of that closing round, it can be too much. And that's certainly what we saw with Paul Dunn uh, back in 2015. Yeah, well, I guess it's probably fair to say that uh, as many majors have been lost as they've been won over the years, and it's totally understandable. Right, to hole five. Now, this is uh, the first of only two par fives on the old course. 570 yards, potentially an eagle and a birdie fest. It's famous for the spectacles bunkers, another putting surface of around 100 yards in length, a deep swale that guards the green. This, though, an opportunity, Robert, if you've made a reasonable start and you're thinking, OK, this day is 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 moving in the right direction, here's now an opportunity to put your foot on the accelerator, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, if you're under par through the first four, you get into five and you're thinking, OK, here we go. A down breeze for these guys, it's, it's a nothing yardage-wise second shot. They can all reach. The hard thing is the front pin downwind that's the hard thing you'd be going oh good the pin's on the front and it's 100 yards long the green but the front pin there's a big rise up to the very front edge of it and then it's downhill from that point to a pin that could be 10 or 12 on it's almost impossible to get close so you're all going to be playing 20 yards past probably and having a 60 footer back into the wind if it's downwind if it's into the wind um placing a tee shot in the right spot is absolutely critical but the field i mean we don't really these days seem to get Blow away conditions in an open, you know, where 79 is a good score. We don't seem to get that anymore. So anyone in in reasonable non-tornado weather playing that fifth hole wants to walk off with a birdie four. Yes, opportunities knock. And that was the case in 1984 when Seve was cheered on by Lee Trevino to a birdie and nearly an eagle. Uh, he appears to be using something like a number three or four iron. He'll have to pick the club up very sharply in the back swing and drive the ball forward. Touch of class, baby. Touch of class. Touch of class. Get up. When that's heavy. Well, that is pure magic. looked as if it was turning in and then it straightened up and that would have taken him into joint second place with Tom Watson but instead it takes him alongside Bernard Langer and Trevino at eight under. It's just such an iconic moment. The, uh, the commentary from Lee Trevino, everything that Seve did, that, that's, uh, you can hear that piece of audio a thousand times and, and it takes you back to such a special day, doesn't no. it? No. Do you know what's great about that? It's the lack of commentary. That's what was so great. That's television commentary. That was the lack of commentary. It was just the shot, Trevino going, get up, bueno, and, and Alex Hay saying very little, mm. and then the, the applause. It just didn't need any more than that. Special. Yeah. 
Uh, and Seve, obviously, in terms of the Open, Matty was so special. What in particular do you think of when, when you think of the, the Spanish superstar? There are Opens at St. Andrews. Every one of them are, are brilliant, don't get me wrong. But there are certain ones that continue to reverberate through time. And that 1984 Open and that win by Seve, which was his second open win in his fourth major when he did it. He ended up winning by two over uh, Bernhard Langer and defending champion Tom Watson was so significant. One, because he came into that final round two shots behind Tom Watson. And Tom Watson himself was chasing significant history at the open. So think about that. Given that time and place that you would have two of the game's biggest stars on that stage at that time battling it out until we saw Seve with the fist pump, Robert, at 18. Mm. That, again, I'm just I'm getting a chill up my spine yep. just recounting it because it was so cool and so special and so iconic. It was, and, and Seve had a tattoo on his forearm of that 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 punch in the air that's, yeah. that's super famous. I've got a uh, print at home that Seve signed of that punch that moment as a little art shop in the middle of St Andrews Vanessa runs it lovely lady and she's got these um, all different sizes pictures of that moment the Seve punch on the 18th green at St Andrews but it's made up of pixels and each square is a different image of Seve to make up the big image if you're a Seve fan mm. you find your way there I won't give away the name of the shop because that would be too much but go and see Vanessa she'll give you a price at least 15% off well, we'll talk more about Seve and the 18th a little bit later in this two-part podcast, but uh, we'll stick in chronological order and move, obviously, now from hole five to hole six, which is a 414-yard par four. Blind tee shot. You've got the coffin bunkers on the fairway. That's a double green. Fair to say that uh, if you get the tee shot right, this is another birdie opportunity, Rob? Look, if you're playing well, every hole's a birdie hole. That's the way you've got to look at life. But the, the bunkers around St Andrews... Um, You've just got to avoid them. You're going to be... They're not very deep from, from the front of the bunker to the back of the bunker. They're not very deep, so you're always going to be close to the revetted face. And we've seen over the years when you're even a, a, the, one of the best players in the world just gets a little bit greedy. You catch the lip, it comes back down. More often than not, it plugs because the sand can be quite soft. You have to find a game plan that keeps you away from the bunkers. And that dictates what you're going to do along with the pin positions. Yeah, six, if it's playing downwind, it's not long. Um... It can be driven. Um, you know, the very, very longest players, you'll probably see tee shots downwind running up near that green at 370-odd yards. Well, Matt will remember one key moment from 2015 on the sixth hole because he was commentating on it. This is Jordan Spieth, who uh, was in the midst of a quest to secure the third leg of what he hoped would be a grand slam. See the rough there. It's really blowing quite hard now, all of a sudden. The weather's supposed to improve in about two hours' time, I think. A bit sooner, Spieth. It's a little run up to the sixth. Oh, he's got such a good touch, this boy. Unbelievable. Almost too good. That shot. Well, another Jordan, and this one from just inside of ten feet. A birdie opportunity at the sixth for Jordan Spieth to pull within one shot of the lead. Sends it to the cup, and it's in. Jordan Spieth with a fist pump goes to 14 under par. There's such great memories of Jordan Spieth in 2015 at that Open to have come as close as he did after winning the Masters, after winning the U.S. Open in advance. 
and knowing that there was this opportunity to go three for three in major championships, such a buzz, such an excitement. And as Rob was describing that six hole to us before we played that soundbite of Jordan's birdie, it is interesting because I can recall as Jordan hit his tee shot that day on six, we were standing maybe uh, 50 meters, I'm guessing, from him to to watch the flight of his ball. And I remember him walking past me and asking, did you see where that ball ended up? I couldn't see it either the way that I could see that it's lying, but I couldn't see where it actually finished. Ultimately, as you saw, heard, it was fine. But it was interesting to me that Jordan Spieth is so engaged. His mind is so active that even then, before his 22nd birthday, during that magical summer, uh, he was he was already processing what's next. Where am I going to be? What club am I going to need to hit from there? It was quite a dramatic day and really exciting for him to get within one. Well, he's, he's great entertainment, isn't he? Whether he's, he's mm. playing well or, or just providing a bit of extra commentary as well. Rob, you guys are redundant when, when Jordan's on the screens. I, I think Matt's made a very good point. I mean, Jordan talks a lot. He just is a guy of nervous energy, talks non-stop to his golf ball, to his caddy. Uh, he must be exhausted after 18 holes of golf, Jordan Spieth. But, you know, you never know what's going to happen with him. He's the X factor. He can play the most unbelievable golf and then hit some shots that, where did that come from? But if you're invested in Jordan Spieth, you will never, ever be dull and never, ever be bored because um, he's one amazing player. An amazing guy, actually. Really, really super genuine bloke. Yeah, fabulous player, fabulous character. Right, hole seven, 371 yards, par four. Green shared with the 11th, the flag on the 11th, generally considered to be a, a good line from the tee. You've got the shell bunker, of course, at approximately 310 yards, waiting to catch out the big hitters. So what's going through the minds of the players when they walk onto the 70. It's a positional shot, to be honest. You can't see where it finishes, but you know you you know how far you need to hit it. You don't need to hit it more than probably 220 yards, 230 yards down there. That's about it. And then the short iron in. Again, I'm 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 sort of giving you numbers for pretty still conditions. Um, it can be tricky with a crosswind. They can put that pin in awkward little spots on that green because it's far from being flat or straightforward. But it doesn't have a whole lot of defence, to be honest. Um, it's it's a pickup hole. If you hit the right tee shot, there's plenty of space down there to find a line and try and hit an accurate second and give yourself yet another chance for a birdie. Well, talking of the seventh, takes us back to 1995. Some horrendous conditions there in terms of the wind in particular. But that didn't put off a certain John Daly. John Daly now with... A shot more directly at the ridge. Now, he worked that out well. But, you see, he didn't have to worry that the slope was going to throw it away to the right. He was coming more or less at it at right angles. A lovely shot, well controlled. John Daly. Yeah! Huge cheer goes up there. Great three at the seventh for John Daly. Took it on off the tee, obviously could see if he get it far enough, he could get a, a straight shot into that bank and uh, judged it well and finished it off too. Well, John Daly in that green top that uh, I think everybody will remember. That no one can see at home who's listening to this. <laughs> no, but I think even when you're listening, I mean, you, you have certain images. You, you mentioned Seve the fist pump and you yeah. knew he'd be wearing the navy blue yeah. pullover. Uh, John, maybe not sartorially one of the more elegant performers, but in terms of the way Matty, he played... That weekend in, in winds of around, you know, 40 miles an hour, it was an astonishing performance, wasn't it? 
it was truly an astonishing performance. And, and you remember in 1995, the, the first thing of distinction that took place at that open was it was the final open appearance of Arnold Palmer and those indelible images of him crossing the Swilkin Bridge for the final time and taking off his hat and waving to the faithful. Uh, at the same time, here we had John Daly and John Daly, not only in terms of what he was wearing in the billowing jumper, but it was also who he was at that time. You remember he was fighting what he called sugar cravings and he would pound down these, he said five, six of whether they were chocolate muffins or croissants or, or, or <laughs> whatever the, the, the particular makeup was of these baked goods that he would eat. He, he, he's just a unique character. So unique that everyone knows of his prodigious ability to drive the golf ball a long way, particularly during those days. It is interesting when you look at him winning uh, for driving distance over the course of years when he was at the height of his prowess, those distances weren't far off from where they are now on average on tour, which just shows you how long he was hitting it at a time when people were still popping it out there because of the equipment and otherwise. And yet John Daly doesn't get the credit, uh, Rob, I don't think that he deserves in terms of the delicacy of his short game, mm. his ability with, as you saw, heard in that one, the, the, the hit the little pitch shots that he needs to hit, how to judge them in those very severe conditions, and equally as much how subtle he is with the putter, the way he uses it at a brush, uh, as a brush in contrast to what he does with the hammer that is his driver then and now. Actually, you know, John Daly... At the peak of his powers, a really well-rounded player. No, no weaknesses. Could hit it miles. Um, mm -hmm. And as Matt said, around the greens, a beautiful touch, both with his pitching and chipping and, and his putter. So, you know, you can't be a duffer if you win a major. No. And John Daly, um, a different way of doing things from most of these sort of, you know, methodical... Uh, robotics, probably too strong a word, but, but guys that have a very strict regime with their life and their practice, John's not that guy. But however, when you look at the golfing package that he had, it was awesome. Yes, and we'll come back to John Daly in part two of the podcast because, of course, there was there was drama and he had to show plenty of nerve after mm -hmm. Constantino Rocca's uh, magic on, on the 18th, which led to a, a playoff. But we'll, we'll save that for another time. Now, the eighth hole is the first of only two par threes at the old course, 187 yards. You've got the short hole bunker. That's obviously... An issue. You've got the green shared with the tenth, which is very tricky, as evidenced by Jordan Spieth's Sunday mishap back in 2015. My goodness, this is. Watch how far he's going to swing this putter. This is a long one, Maureen. Well, Michael Greller took 36 paces from ball to hole to attend the flag. Whoa! Good grief. I had to go for it, partner. <laughs> Speed for his par of the eighth. Now sit down. Yeah, he's got it on the little tabletop. Very awkward spot where the flag is cut. Very few twos at number eight today. For a bogey at the eighth. Four putt. Well, on the green, off the green, two more butts. Well, that could be, could be. His chance is over. Well, it's not done him any good, Ken, but he's got fighting qualities. We've seen that time and time again since his, uh, the start of his very young career. Ooh, I put a, I shut it down your spine just listening to that sort of thing. 
But, Matt, of course, perhaps at St Andrews more than many other courses, if your putter is cold, if you get yourself into the wrong portion of the green, unfortunately, you are likely to experience nightmare moments like that. Well, you used the proper word there, Marcus. It was cold. At that particular time, uh, we were out at, at turning on the golf course, as you do at that part of the old course, and a squall came in of, of a storm, a very, very heavy rain, and it was accompanied by a conspiring very heavy and cold wind. That combination, it definitely threw off Jordan Spieth. Jordan was not subject to a, a fickle twist of fate there. What happened with Jordan at that time on the eighth hole in that final round was that he lost focus. He lost concentration, and it cost him dearly with that four-putt. Remarkable to think that he ended up finishing but one shot out of the playoff after that. But that which you just heard and saw is what ultimately cost Jordan Spieth his chance of winning that Open. It was it was quite remarkable to see. He did he did obviously regather himself and and perform gallantly coming in, even even so close as to be a whisker away from earning his way into the playoff with his putt through the Valley of Sin at 18. But alas, when one looks back on it and and being the eyewitness that day to what happened to Jordan Spieth, it it all culminated at number eight. That was it was just such a tough situation at that moment that it got inside of his head. Yeah, Rob, that was ex certificate listening, wasn't it? Yeah, and you know that eighth green, I I can't think a reason why it is, but for some reason it's very wind affected when you're on there putting. It's it's not a straightforward green. There are lots of little changes in elevation and, and angles that you've got to get to, depending on where they put the pin. But for some reason, the wind seems to play a big factor, especially with, you know, curly three and four footers. And if you don't get them right, the three footers going three feet by and you can have another look at the same part again. You've got to be careful. It would be remiss not to mention Ben Crenshaw, though, if, if you remember back in 1984, hole in one. In the fourth round. Now, that's what everyone will be signing up for. Easier said than done, of course. But that gets rid of all the issues of tricky greens, doesn't it, when you just ram it straight in the hole? I guess it does, but as a game plan, it's pretty <laughs> undependable. <laughs> yes, it's not the percentage play, that's for sure. No. OK, from the eighth to the ninth, our final hole in part one of our journey around the old course. Part four, 352 yards, one of several shortish par fours around the turn. So a another birdie chance presumably you've got bunkers at about 260 and, and 290 yards so, so those looking to take on the green have got something to think about but um it must be tempting yeah if they can reach they're going to be going at this green and if it's down breeze they can hit three woods on so it's a big massive fairway it's shared with the tenth that comes back in the opposite direction that shares the eighth green so the ninth is its own green no one shares that green it's when you're in this corner of the golf course, the part where you think you can really start to get something going, you can drive or get close to nine, you can drive or get close to 10, 11's a horrible little par three, then 12 you can knock it on, then you've got a par five coming. So that's the kind of the loop, they call that out there near the Eden Estuary. That's where you can really make some scores. And you will see some scores when we get to this year's Open, especially around that corner. Yeah, and one man who benefited back in 2010 by driving the green on the ninth was Louis Oosthuizen, who, of course, went on to win the whole thing. Well, this is a big shot, too, for Oosthuizen. He's got the power, not much shorter than Casey, so he can get there. He needs a good one now. He's lost two shots to Casey in the last three holes, and with Casey on the green, this is when he needs to pull one out of the bag. Looked a better swing. 
Oh, yes. Matches Casey blow for blow. Anything you can do. And even better for distance. And Oosthuizen's eagle putt inside that of Casey's. I think it's quite important for Oosthuizen to keep Casey at bay. This is for an eagle. I've already seen Casey coming up way short, Oosthuizen. This is tracking well, very well. Oh, my goodness, Louis Oosthuizen. Step back at the eighth, huge leap forward at the ninth. And that is a, a mighty leap towards this Open Championship. He reaches the turn with a bogey at the eighth, an eagle at the ninth, and suddenly he is five shots clear. Well, talk about getting on, on a roll. What a way to end his, his front nine. And, of course, Matt, he, he had a real liking for the course. He's got a liking for the Open in general. 2010 went on to be his year. What impressed you most about the way he went about his business back then? I think it was his serenity, the fact that that he kept himself uh, in a mindset emotionally, uh, his his team, that he was able to perform one shot at a time, even after he did that at number nine, which effectively ended the race. It, it, it was uh, Paul Casey, I guess, emphatically put, put an end to his chances at number 12 coming up. But when Louis did that, he didn't lose his focus. He didn't lose his concentration. He didn't start thinking about the rewards of a race that had not yet been completed. So those were the things that stand out to me in terms of just how serene he was. Obviously, his swing is so elegant and so majestic, uh, but it was his mind that impressed me the most. OK, great memories of Louis Oosthuizen from 2010. So we have reached the halfway stage in our journey. We're going to pop into the halfway house, have a refreshing drink, a, a bacon sandwich. Well, you know what you've got to have when you go there? You've got to have a, a haggis roll. Ooh. Mm. Is, is, yeah, it's is, good. Is it good? Oh, it's good. Yeah? It's really good, yeah. Halfway Matty, house. How Matty. can you go there and not have a, a like, instead of a sausage roll, it's a haggis roll? Yeah, but it's, it's an acquired taste, isn't no, it? No, no, no. Just it, it's it's like a sausage roll, but it's Scottish. If you get the ingredients, you might let your mind wander, but it tastes phenomenal. Matty, haggis roll for you? Absolutely, I love it. I love it that it's spicy. Uh, I I just I agree with Robert completely. Win in Rome, or in this case, yeah. win in St. Andrews. Yeah. And, and should you put lots of Coleman's mustard on it, as famously Fanny Sunnison did when she was tricked by Nick Faldo at one of um, their successful opens? She'd never had Coleman's mustard before. She said, is, is it like mayonnaise? Yeah, I said, yeah, yeah, just whack it all on. Her mouth burned for about a week after that. Oh, she laughed. She laughed. <laughs> uh, other mustard brands, by the way, are available, of course. OK, we'll, we'll take a break. Remember to subscribe via your favourite podcast provider and that way when part two of our St Andrews course guide is released on Tuesday the 5th of July where we review the back nine at the home of golf, you'll be notified straight away. And a reminder, you can also listen to the open radio during the championship from Thursday the 14th of July to Sunday the 17th where we'll bring you full uninterrupted coverage until the close of play each day. And you can also listen to our review podcasts after every day's play. But for now, from me, Marcus Buckland, from Robert Lee and from Matt Adams, it's goodbye. Explore the rich history of the Open like never before with our interactive timeline celebrating the journey. Visit thejourney.theopen.com and immerse yourself in golf's original championship. This has been an original audio production.
from the open.